My name is Umer, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. Dimitri Lascaris is a lawyer, journalist, and activist, and Dimitri is currently a candidate in the race for the leadership of the Green Party of Canada. And I won't say too much more. I mean, there's a, he has a much longer biography, but I'm going to let Dimitri tell us about himself. So for the moment, uh, welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Dimitri. Thank you, Amal. It's a pleasure to be here. So I think many of our listeners will know that uh, Elizabeth May, who had been the leader of the Green Party of Canada since 2006, stepped down from that position late last year. So now there's a process underway to find a new leader. And Dimitri is one of those people who hopes to be the new leader. So I'm mostly going to be chatting uh, with Dimitri about his candidacy, but uh, maybe we'll, we'll chat about a few other things as well. And to begin with, uh, Dimitri, it's my understanding that you are based in Montreal? That's correct. I was uh, actually born and raised in London, Ontario, uh, to two uh, Greek immigrant parents who came here in the 50s after living through the Depression, World War II, and the Civil War that followed. Uh, Not too many people know this, but the main resistance to what was a very brutal Nazi occupation in Greece was the left. And when the Nazis were expelled from Greece, uh, the United States government and the British government decided to support the royalists and other right-wing camps, including some who had been collaborators with the Nazi regime to crush the leftist opposition to the Nazi occupation. And that led to a very brutal civil war. And my parents lived through all of that. And when they came to Canada in the 50s, uh, they didn't have a year of high school education. And they came to a country where, frankly, you know, in some parts of the country, people from Southern Europe at the time were not particularly welcome. And so it was when I grew up in London, Ontario, in a predominantly white neighborhood, uh, you know, it, it, it was tough. You weren't you weren't a white guy. I, well, I'm a, I, look today. I, I certainly would call myself, uh, you know, I, I'm a white person, and I've, in the grand scheme of things, I've enjoyed the privileges that attach to being a white person in this country. But at the time when I was born in Canada, as the child of two Greek Greek immigrants, it wasn't a particularly inviting environment. I don't pretend that we went through the kinds of extraordinary difficulties that you know Indigenous peoples have endured. Members of the Black community members of the Jewish community, members of the uh, Arab community. Uh, but I did get a bit of taste of what it's like to be a marginalized from a marginalized group when I was growing up. And that did shape my thinking about things. And fortunately, by the time I got to be a young man, you know, Greeks had been fully integrated and other immigrants from Southern Europe had been fully integrated into Canadian society. I think because ultimately we were accepted by sort of the predominant uh, ethnic group in this country as being Europeans. So you guys have much better food. We have much better everything, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't consider myself as someone who came from a disadvantaged group. I don't. Uh, but I do think that my experience as a child growing up in Canada to two Greek immigrants parents gave me a little a little insight into how difficult it must be uh, to come from a racialized group in this country. And uh, and so in my advocacy, I have tried uh, very hard to remain sympathetic to that. And uh, it shaped my uh, my thinking about these issues. But you know, beyond that, I ended up going to law school at the University of Toronto. And then having accumulated a significant amount of student debt, I was attracted to the idea of going to work in New York City. That's not the only reason. Uh, there were other reasons at the time. 
I decided to go to New York City and I worked for a Wall Street law firm as a corporate securities lawyer. That was my first job out of law school. That gave me also some insights which have shaped my life. I saw firsthand how the justice system is bent to the will of those who have the greatest resources to access it. And that, you know, also from the perspective of what laws get passed and don't get passed and what regulations get implemented and don't get implemented, the wealthy and the privileged have enormous influence. And they use it to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the general population. And I I saw that firsthand on Wall Street. And I I found that to be a pretty unsatisfying experience. I did that for a few years and ultimately ended up coming back to Canada. And I became a class actions lawyer. And I swore that I would never represent another corporation again. And I committed myself to representing, you know, individual Canadians and union pension funds in litigation, primarily relating to stock market fraud, but also relating to the environment and human rights. Uh, And so that's what I did for my professional career. In 2016, I retired from that, from class actions practice, and I decided to, I was 52 at the time, I decided to devote myself to pro bono legal work, to activism and independent journalism for an organization called The Real News. And that's what brought me to where I am today. And actually, The Real News is how I first got to know you. I mean, this is a bit weird, for me to say, but not because we don't know each other, but I know your work on the real news. I I used to watch that all the time. And it was an important part of my politicization. So thanks for that. Thank you. It was for me too. I mean, when I, uh, I, I discovered the real news in 2007, because the founders of the real news happened to live in Kensington in Toronto next to a very good friend of mine, and he introduced me uh, to them. So I started watching them assiduously and then quickly became a supporter uh, and all of this, by the way, followed my being introduced in 2006 to uh, Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. The same friend urged me to read that book. It had a profound impact on me. Then I discovered the real news. Then came the financial crisis. Then came the fourth report of the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in November 2007, which caused me to become quite alarmed about the future of my children. And so in very rapid succession, there was these these external events in the world, but also personal experiences to me, which uh, I think at that time really created in me a strong commitment to socialism. I hadn't been strongly committed to socialism until that time. I was kind of in the political wilderness, but that that all of that did it for me. And uh, since then, I, I hope I've become a, a passionate spokesperson for the objectives and principles that are dear to socialists around the country. Well, let's uh, let's chat about your ideas about socialism and, and your candidacy in a second. But first, I want to ask about what conditions are like in Montreal, because Montreal has been uh, hit particularly hard by COVID-19. It's actually the worst affected city in the country. I think 27,000 cases, more than 3,000 deaths. And the death rate is, I think, four times higher than Toronto. Uh, which is the second hardest hit city. So what what are conditions like from your standpoint? How have you and your family been managing? Well, I, I would I'm I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, I I've, I've got uh, I've got a wonderful partner who's been with me here every day. I've been uh, confined to my uh, my condominium in downtown Montreal for this entire period, almost this entire period. Uh, our daughter who studies in Ottawa was able to come and visit us and spend a, lo- a good bit of time for us. I hadn't seen my son who lives in London, Ontario, studying there for three months. And I finally got to see him. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, no one in our family fell ill. We're financially secure. We didn't need to be concerned about 
the economic crisis that has unfolded, not on a personal level, we've, we, we've not had to suffer as a result of that. So I personally am very fortunate, but I can see all around me, you know, in the city, a great deal of hardship. I mean, one, one of the things that was striking to me is how many people, homeless people, were congregating in our neighborhood and just so desperate because the little meager subsistence that, were, that they were able to, to scrounge together from passers-by when Montreal was a normal bustling city, that had evaporated for them. And it was terrible to see how, uh, how desperate they, they had become in these circumstances. The city really went into a pretty, pretty strict confinement. Uh, despite all of that, as you noted, this city has been disproportionately hit by infections and deaths. And I think that there is going to have to be an accounting for that, you know, as we emerge from this crisis and we have a, an opportunity to reflect and to look more carefully at the data. Why did that happen here? And, you know, I think the media, frankly, has been a little bit too kind to the government of Monsieur Legault. And the time is coming when we're going to have to ask the hard questions. Why did Quebec, why did Montreal in particular, become the epicenter of this crisis, of the COVID-19 crisis in Canada? And I think, uh, I think that this is not just, to be fair to Mr. Legault, it's not something that he himself is going to have to answer for, but also prior liberal governments and PQ governments, frankly in the province of Quebec. All of this was a long time in the making. And we were obviously not ready as a province, as a city, to deal effectively with this crisis. Well, and one of the main aspects of the crisis across the country, but especially in Quebec and Ontario, has been the way that it has impacted those who live in long-term care facilities. Absolutely. And so I, I wonder what you think about that. I mean, in terms of things that should have already been apparent, you know, the, in, in Ontario, I don't know this, the situation as well in Quebec, but on, in Ontario, long-term care centers have been, have had harrowing conditions long before COVID-19 came. Yeah. So this doesn't come as a surprise. Not at all. And, you know, the situation was not appreciably better in the long, long-term care facilities in Quebec. You know, this is an essential service, and this is something that should be provided by the government, it should be supported by robust, robust funding and robust oversight. And both of those things were lacking here. Uh, this is not something that should be entrusted to private enterprises. And in fact, nothing that is of essential importance to the population should be entrusted to private enterprise. I'm a big believer in public control over the things that are necessary to ensure a decent life to all of our citizens, and particularly to the most marginalized members of our society. And the thing about people in long-term care facilities is many of them are voiceless. You know, they don't have people who are in a position to effectively and, and have the incentive to effectively advocate on their behalf. And so it becomes even more important in that situation for government to play a highly proactive role in funding and oversight of the facilities to which we have we have entrusted their care. And that clearly did not happen here. It's appalling what happened in long term care facilities across the country, but particularly in Ontario and Quebec. And uh, I hope that this will force us all to have a frank and informed and critical discussion about who should own the means of ensuring and control the means of ensuring that healthcare is delivered to all Canadians in a timely and effective manner. Okay, so we're, we've already sort of gone, started going in this direction of you talking about your ideas for, for what policy should be like. But in a broad sense, broadly speaking, what does your policy agenda look like? Well, I, I am very, very focused on the whole question of inequality. You know, there was a, 
a report that just came out within the last few days from the PBO, which showed that uh, I believe it was something in the range of 25-26% of the national wealth was owned by 1% of the population. I believe it also showed that the richest 1% had something, had the equivalent of all the wealth controlled by 80%, the lowest 80% of the population. This to me is an absolutely obscene level of inequality and it's getting worse and nobody in parliament has put forward, in my view, a program that is going to meaningfully address the inequality and drastically reduce the inequality. So one plank of my platform is going to be a dramatic increase in the top marginal tax rate. I believe it should be no higher than 70%. Uh, you know, for much of the post-World War II period, the, the corporate media never touches this subject. Politicians never talk about this, but for much of the post-World War II period, the top marginal tax rate in Canada and the United States was in excess of not 70, but 90%. And I believe it was in excess of 70% right up until the 80s. So there's nothing radical or extreme about a top marginal tax rate in the range of 70%. I believe we should be doing something which nobody talks about in the political class in this country, and that, that is we should be talking about wealth caps. I think we should have absolutely limits on well, absolute limits on the wealth on wealth accumulation. I don't think we should have billionaires. I really don't understand why a democratic society would ever tolerate the idea that a person could accumulate a billion of dollars or more of wealth. That is far beyond anything that any reasonable human being could require to live a high quality life and to ensure the security and comfort of his or her family. So I would like to see wealth caps put in place. In other words, 100% tax on net worth in excess of a certain maximum. And I think that maximum should be far below a billion dollars. I think we should eliminate preferential treatment for capital gains altogether. I see no reason why people who pass, wealthy people who passively invest their income have a more favorable tax rate on earnings from those investments than people who are making money from their labor. I think we should have limits on the spread between executive compensation and worker compensation. I think we should ensure that there's labor representation on the boards of companies particularly the large corporations, and it should be significant labor representation. You know, I could go on and on. I mean, I think we have to eliminate access to tax havens. I think we, we, have, to, we have to increase the funding of the enforcement division of the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, and direct them to focus their efforts on high income earners and corporations. I think we should be increasing the corporate tax rate, certainly the, the rate on large corporations significantly. There's a whole range of things that we can do to drastically alter the picture and reduce the trend of increasing inequality and reallocate wealth to those who need it the most. And the other thing I want to say is, even if in, if we manage to put together a system, and we should, as a, as a democratic country or a country that purports to be democratic, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, this should be a no-brainer that we have absolutely no poverty in this society, absolutely no homelessness. Even if we manage to achieve that, it would still be necessary for the health of our democracy that we limit wealth accumulation. Because people who have hundreds of millions or even worse billions of dollars of wealth can and do routinely use that wealth to bend the political system to their will. They can have an outsized impact on the media and the reporting that the media does. They can influence policymaking. They can engage in forms of lobbying that is skewing the political system to their advantage. So. It's not just that we have to deal with the people at the bottom of the wealth scale and the income scale and ensure that they are much better off than they currently are, but we have to stop in any event people from accumulating so much wealth that they corrode our democratic institutions. We do not have today what I would regard as a real democracy. 
What we have, and largely because of this inequality, is what I would call a quasi-democracy. We have elements of democracy, but we also have elements of oligarchy. And it's getting worse. And nobody in this country is putting forward a bold platform that is actually going to address the problem at its core. Everybody is proposing band-aids or nothing at all. And your solution is to tax the rich. 100%. So if I become a rich guy... Yeah, you can, you can expect to pay a large bill if I'm the prime minister. Absolutely. I'm making no bones about it. And you should expect that... You, uh, and by the way, everything that I'm proposing, ultimately, if I were to become the leader, that I believe very much in grassroots democracy, all of this would have to be supported by the membership of the party. Some of this already is. Some of it, I'm going to have to persuade the membership of the party to support it, and I will do that to the best of my ability. I'm not going to impose any platform on the party. It's ultimately going to be up to the members of the party to decide what our platform is. But that is the platform for which I will advocate. And if I succeed, then you can expect that this is a party that is going to be engaging in massive, and I want to repeat, massive wealth redistribution. Because there is far too much wealth concentrated in far too many hands, and that must end. Far too few hands. Far too few hands. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of the things you've said in your campaigning is that you want to grow the Green Party, obviously. Um, I guess in the broad scheme of things, it is Canada's fourth party, with the, the Liberals and, and Conservatives being the two main parties and the NDP being our third party. And one of the things you've said is that you hope to grow the Green Party, partly by winning over those who are currently supporting the NDP. And I can obviously understand where you're coming from here. And obviously, your policy agenda is one that it will appeal to the left and leftists, many of whom, if they don't necessarily support the NDP wholeheartedly, still will vote for the NDP because it's, you know, given the the choices available, it's still the best choice. So, I guess I would just ask, so what do you mean when you say you want to win people over from the NDP and, and how are you going to do it? Okay, well, let's, let's step back and, and, and it's not just about the NDP. I want to unite all progressives in this country under one banner, the green banner. Uh, the NDP is obviously a part of that equation. But I think it's instructive to look at a, a few statistics which emerged from a poll last year done by Forum Research during the election. Uh, this poll... You can check it out online. Again, it's Forum Research looked at Canadians' attitudes towards socialism and capitalism. What it found, I thought, was quite instructive. It found that the liberal in the Liberals, the Greens, and the NDP, a very substantial majority of those who identified as supporters of those parties had a favorable view of socialism. In the Liberals, interestingly, the number was 74% has a, had a positive view of socialism. In the Greens, it was 69%. In the NDP, it was 85%. And then they asked, what is your view of capitalism? And 45%, almost half of liberals, had a negative view of capitalism. The Greens was 60% and the NDP 64%. There were only two parties in which majorities had both a negative view of capitalism and a positive view of socialism, and those were the Greens and the NDP. But the numbers of the Liberals also are very revealing, and obviously they have far more support nationally than either of the other two parties at this time. And what this says to me is that there are a lot of people in this country who have both a, a cross party lines, with the exception to a large degree of the Conservative Party, uh, who have a positive view of socialism, a negative view of capitalism. And then, of course, we have 
you know, when we talk about voting patterns, 8 million Canadians approximately didn't even vote in the last election. And I happen to believe by, from having talked to people around the country, many of whom told me they've given up on electoral politics, that the vast majority of them have given up because they think that the system is skewed to benefit the privileged few. And they're right. It is. And so they just don't bother anymore. So I think within that pool of people who do not vote but are eligible to vote, you also have a very large potential source of support. So I, I'm not only looking at the NDP, I'm very interested in all of those people in the, in the Liberal Party who have a negative view of capitalism and a positive view of socialism. I'm interested in all of those independent voters who don't even bother voting because they know that the system is rigged against them. And I think when you put all of those people together, it is a massive number of voters. Right now, the vote is split amongst all these parties. And we have to unite that vote. And I think that this is an extraordinary opportunity to do that. I believe that there is a vacuum on the left. I think there's a lot of frustration in the NDP base with the fact that successive uh, leaders, first it was Mulcair, now Jagmeet Singh, are either centrist, as Mr. Mulcair was, he was firmly ensconcing himself in the center. His successor, Mr. Singh, has taken a somewhat more progressive approach, but at the end of the day, he's still committed to incrementalism. He's not putting forth a truly transformational platform. He's not talking about wealth caps. He's not talking about dramatically increasing, you know, the top marginal tax rate to 70% or more. Uh, you know, he, I don't believe he's talking about completely eliminating preferential treatment for capital gains. And certainly when you look at his foreign policy, there's nothing transformational about the NDP leadership's foreign policy. And certainly the liberal, the liberal leadership's foreign policy is just a pale imitation of U.S. foreign policy, which is a complete and utter disaster. So there's a tremendous amount of frustration, I think, within the NDP base amongst people who don't typically vote, and even within the left wing of the Liberal Party. And all we have to do is articulate a platform that speaks to their frustration, unites them, and we can really change this country. So I want to ask about foreign policy and about Canada's failed bid to win a seat at the uh, UN Security Council. But before that, I, I want to ask about the Green Party itself. So you are very consciously running as a left-wing candidate and you want to present yourself as a, not only as, um, as a part of the progressive left, but explicitly the socialist left. And the Green Party of Canada, unlike most other Green Parties around the world, has historically actually sought to position itself outside of the left, right? I mean, what was that? What was the slogan? Not left, not right, but forward? Correct. Right? Yes. And so I guess, what hope is there for pulling such a party to the left? And I know you, you are not just running as a candidate for the leadership of the Green Party out of nowhere. You have been a member of this party for a while. Yeah. Well, I, again, I, for, let me start again by repeating those statistics. 69% of Green Party members, according to last year's forum poll, had a positive view of socialism, and 60% uh, had a negative view of capitalism. So I think we have uh, strong support amongst the grassroots of the party, whatever the leadership historically may have done, for the kind of platform that I am uh, promoting and advocating for. The other thing I want to say to you is that the Green Party's gone through an evolution, the Green Party of Canada. You know, it is true that it, within the last 15 years, it really started with the Jim Harris era. The party was quite explicit in trying to position itself as being centrist. And in the, in the, as you noted, in the last election, the, the, 
the slogan of the party was neither left nor right, but forward, a slogan with which I disagreed strenuously from the outset. But, but prior to that time, you know, for example, when Joan Rousseau was the leader, and Joan Rousseau, by the way, the former leader of the Green Party before Jim Harris has endorsed my campaign and has rejoined the party in part in order to support my campaign. Joan Rousseau had a vision for the Green Party of Canada was very similar to the one that I'm articulating. So the Green Party is not, the, the leadership of the Green Party has gone through an evolution. And I think in some ways, what I'm trying to advocate for is a return to the base, the roots of the party and to our original vision of the party, while at the same time learning constructively and positively from the gains that the party has made and from the professionalization of the party that occurred under Elizabeth May. Uh, you know, we won our first seats in Parliament. Uh, we didn't have seats before in Parliament. We expanded the base of the party. We expanded the financial means of, that the party had to contest elections. But I still think that we are not even near to fulfilling our potential. I mean, at the end of the day, in the last election, we earned slightly less than 1% of the seats, even though we had probably the most favorable electoral circumstances we'd ever seen. Unprecedented le levels of concern for the climate crisis, which is a signature issue for our party. You know, Jagmeet Singh was, his NDP was in disarray, and he ultimately, despite the fact that he finished relatively strongly, his party took a beating at the polls. You know, Justin Trudeau was scandalized with SNC-Lavalin, with blackface, with his betrayal of the climate movement, uh, with his betrayal of his commitment to reform the electoral system. And uh, the, the conservatives have just basically gravitated so far to the right with an ineffective leader that uh, they were not a real issue in the last election. And they become increasingly marginalized by their extremism. So I think this was really an extraordinary opportunity for the Green Party. And we didn't even hit our highest level of popular support in the last election. So while we have made gains, we've learned you know, to, how to navigate to a more effective degree the electoral system. Clearly, our platform, our centrist platform, is not resonating enough with the Canadian electorate for us to become a serious player in Parliament. And we are not going to get there by doing more of the same. There are several people in this race who are effectively advocating for the preservation of the status quo. And if we end up preserving the status quo, if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, we can accept the same results. We need to take, uh, take cognizance of the fact that there is a huge void on the progressive side of the political spectrum, and nobody wants to fill it in Parliament. Nobody has the moral courage to fill it. Well, I'm here to say I'm ready to take on that role. And if we do that, I think we're going to grow this party rapidly. And we're going to bring people from all across the Liberals, the NDP, and from the independent electorate. So let's get to um, the foreign policy. And, and yeah, on foreign policy, the most recent piece of news that uh, everyone's talking about, of course, is Canada's failed bid to win a seat at the UN Security Council. This is the second time in a row that Canada has attempted to win a seat for the last time of course, happened during Stephen Harper's prime ministership. And when Trudeau came to power, he was quite insistent that things would be different this time, that, you know, Canada was back, that we were going to get our international reputation back and people were going to respect us and help us get back on to one of the seats in the Security Council. But it didn't happen. Why is that? 
where do I even begin? I mean, <laughs> thank you for the question. <laughs> There's so much to say in response to this extremely important question. Uh, let me start by saying that we have heard ad nauseum the Trudeau government claim that it is committed to a rules-based international order. Well, what has it done? What has it actually done to demonstrate its commitment to a rules-based international order? During the last few months, in fact, in the midst of a pandemic, when people were least likely to be paying attention, they resumed sales to the monstrous Saudi autocracy, one of the most heinous human rights violators on the planet, sales of deadly weapons. This is not only a government that has destroyed Yemen, a regime, not a government. It's a brutal, misogynistic regime which has destroyed Yemen, which ruthlessly suppresses women and beheads people with reckless abandon, engages in torture, is destabilizing the region. It is also a fomenter of terrorism. You know, so I could go on and on about the sale of Saudi we weapons to the Saudis. You cannot, that in and of itself explodes the myth that the Trudeau government is serious about a rules-based international order and human rights. It is not only supporting that regime, it is selling weapons to the state of Israel, conferring trade benefits on the state of Israel, and voting against the international community and in favor of Israel along with the United States, Israel, and a tiny handful of little island states at the United Nations, even though the, the Canadian government itself has acknowledged explicitly for decades that the settlements in occupied Palestinian territory are a severe violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. It is flatly contradicting its commitment to the Fourth Geneva Convention by engaging in these various forms of cooperation and arms trade with the state of Israel. We cooperate with the brutal dictatorship of Egypt. We are in the Lima Group. We're trying to overthrow the government of Nicolas Maduro while we are cooperating within the Lima Group with a narco dictator, a brutal, vicious narco dictator from Honduras by the name of Juan Orlando Hernandez. Also within the, Green, the Lima Group is the proto-fascist Jair Bolsonaro, who is exposing his fellow Brazilians because of his lunacy to the terrible effects of this pandemic who openly praised a military dictatorship in Brazil and is bringing Brazil back to the precipice of another military dictatorship. The Lima Group also includes Colombia, an egregious human rights violator. You know, we are in bed with Colombia, with Brazil, and other severe human rights violators from Latin America in order to overthrow the government of Nicolas Maduro. And we're participating in a sanctions regime which is causing tens of thousands of persons to die, innocent people, to die in Venezuela. Whatever one may think of the government of Nicolas Maduro, there is absolutely no justification for imposing sanctions on that country that are killing tens of thousands of innocent Venezuelans. Uh, so I could go on and on about this. You know, the fact of the matter is that our foreign policy is a disgrace, that we have absolutely no credibility on the international stage when we say that we are committed to a rules-based international order and human rights. And the proof is in the pudding. In this vote at the United Nations Security Council, Justin Trudeau's government secured fewer votes than the government of Stephen Harper the last time we tried to get a seat on the United Nations Security Council. That is a raging indictment of Canada's foreign policy. To, to, it is not an exaggeration to say that Canada's foreign policy under successive liberal and conservative governments has effectively rendered this country a mere vassal of the United States. That was horrifying enough when we had people like George Bush and, yes, Barack Obama, who 
pursued a, uh, a, a hegemonic and destructive foreign policy, albeit to a lesser degree than Bush. Uh, you know, that, that was horrible enough, but we are continuing to mimic United States foreign policy in the era of Donald Trump. You know, this man is a disaster. He is perhaps the greatest threat to human survival that exists today because he's in charge of an economy that has enormous sway over the global economy. He has control over the most destructive nuclear arsenal in the world, over the most destructive array of conventional military forces in the world. The man is clearly a racist. The man is a pathological liar. The man is a misogynist. The man is utterly incompetent. I mean, he was telling people that they should be should think about, you know, ingesting disinfectant in order to protect themselves from COVID-19. And this lunatic has really a profound sway, even to this very day, over Canadian foreign policy. Uh, I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding. The reason why we lost is because Canada no longer has any credibility on the world stage when it comes to respect for international law and for human rights. And, and if the Trudeau government is going to actually learn from this, then what we will see in the weeks and months ahead is a dramatic repositioning of Canada on the world stage, a dramatic transformation of Canadian foreign policy. And frankly, I have zero hope that that's going to happen. I've seen no indication of that at all. Well, and speaking of Donald Trump, one of the things that sort of became uh, news over the last couple of weeks was Trudeau's now infamous 21-second silence in response to a question by a journalist asking whether he would be willing to criticize the Trump government over its handling of the protests that have come up uh, in response to George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. So I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on Trudeau's silence? Well, he's, uh, this was uh, perhaps the most dramatic exhibition of his fear of Donald Trump's retaliation. And I, I'm, I've been disappointed to see that some people, including people on the left who are not supportive of Justin Trudeau generally, try to excuse Trudeau's behavior by reference to the risk that Donald Trump's megalomania will prompt him to retaliate against Canada and cause economic harm to Canada. I have no illusions about Donald Trump's willingness to lash out at those who are publicly critical of him. But if you take this logic to its ultimate conclusion, the idea that we cannot publicly criticize Donald Trump because he might retaliate economically or politically against Canada, then basically what you're saying is that no matter what that man does, we are going to remain silent in the face of the horror show that is unfolding south of the border. I have a word for that, and that word is appeasement. You know, uh, Neville Chamberlain will perhaps forever live in, the British Prime Minister will perhaps forever live in infamy for having appeased Adolf Hitler at a critical moment in the history of the rise of the Third Reich. And while I don't pretend that Donald Trump is Adolf Hitler, he's not Adolf Hitler, what I can say is that Donald Trump has the ability, because of the power at his disposal, to cause even greater destruction and harm to humanity than Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler did not have a nuclear arsenal. There was no climate emergency to speak of at the time that the Third Reich was in power. You know, Germany did not have the world's reserve currency and the ability to wreak inestimable economic harm using that reserve currency to impose its real will on the rest of the world. Germany did not have access to the conventional military forces that the United States has. 
Donald Trump has so much power to wreak destruction on this planet and to render the planet unlivable that he is arguably the greatest threat from a political perspective that the world has faced since the Second World War and perhaps ever. And the time for appeasement has ended. We have to speak up. We are a sovereign nation. We are a wealthy nation. We have a highly educated population. We have allies on the world stage who are similarly minded. We can cultivate those relationships. We can build other alliances. It's time for us to take a stand and to condemn Donald Trump for the racist and the misogynist, the destabilizer that he is, and the dangerous force that he represents. And if he's not willing to do that, uh, Justin Trudeau, then frankly, he's not fit for the office. What we need is a prime minister who has the courage and the ability to say and articulate what threat Donald Trump actually represents to this world. And it is an extreme threat. So I, you know, I have no sympathy whatsoever for the prime minister when he stands up there and he's asked a perfectly fair question about racism in the United States, the brutal, awful racism that we've seen over and over again, particularly in the United States law enforcement community. I have no sympathy for him when he can't find words that are even modestly critical of Donald Trump. None whatsoever. I call that appeasement. And what uh, what leg do we have to stand on when it comes to, for instance, criticizing the treatment of protesters in Hong Kong or in Iran? If we can't even comment on what's happening in the country that's closest to us. Well, yeah, I think this is a, a, a great question. I mean, you know, the Chinese government, and you know, there's no doubt that the Chinese government is committing. Uh, serious human rights violations and has been for a long time, for example, against the Uyghur Muslims. Uh, but, you know, many other instances of human rights violations. They look at us and they see how uh, obsequious our government is to the United States. I mean, what did, we, what did we do when the United States entered into a brutal war of ag- aggression against Iraq, committing one of the greatest crimes against humanity of the post-World War II period, causing hundreds of thousands of people to die? What stand did we take against the United States? Did we impose economic sanctions against the United States? No, but we imposed economic sanctions on Russia when it annexed Crimea. You know, so you see these other human rights violators around the world, like China, looking at us and saying, you know, why should we care what the Canadian government says? You're obviously a bunch of hypocrites. So we're losing our, mo- our moral authority on the world stage to hold countries like China and Russia and all other human rights violators against whom we have applied some form of sanction. We are losing our moral authority because we are so obsequious towards this American hegemon to the south of the border and all the horrors that it is inflicting on the world. If we want people in the world to actually respect Canada, then we have to apply human rights universally. And with all of, all of the difficulties that that entails, and I don't have any illusions that that is going to create some difficulties for our country, but we can deal with them. You know, we have to build alliances. We have a strong country. We have tremendous resources here. We can be a sovereign nation. We have not been a sovereign nation up until now, and the world can see that. So one of the things I wanted to ask about is, you know, as a, as someone on the left, I'm sure you have a sense that at the present moment, certainly the polls you reference suggest something, that people are open to socialist ideas and whatnot. But we're not exactly prepared to come to power tomorrow, right? Yep. We don't have the we're we're missing organization, right? And and political parties. Mm-hmm. And in in any case, as leftists, we don't just see the electoral process and the electoral route to power as if it's disconnected from everything else that's happening in society. 
We understand that for a left party to come to power in a state and actually manage to do things that it needs to do, that there needs to be a movement. And it seems like Canada is sort of uniquely positioned in, in the world at the moment where we don't really see upsurges of the kind that we've seen, for instance, in the UK and the United States, for instance, with Bernie Sanders. Um, I guess I'm wondering, what are your ideas about how do we, and not, it's not as if like you have an idea and tomorrow we'll have a movement, but how do we sort of work to build a left movement? Well, let me say globally, I'm actually very encouraged by what I've seen. I mean, I remember when, you know, the financial crisis struck up, there, there was, the left was largely more abundant at that stage in the United States and in the Western world, had suffered so many terrible setbacks. We'd seen the social democrats in rapid retreat in Europe. Some social democratic parties like PASOK in Greece were virtually eviscerated from the electoral scene. And neoliberalism, there was that uh, that character who wrote that book about the end of history, that right-wing theorist, I think it was Francis Yuko. Fukuyama. Yeah. And, you know, and so the neoliberal paradigm was very much in ascendancy. And then came the financial crisis. At the beginning, it was a very inchoate and disorganized level of resistance. And it really first manifested itself in the financial crisis or after the financial crisis in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, and I, by the way, I went down to New York City and spent several days in Zuccotti Park just before the police invaded it and cleared it out. And I took part in many protests. And I just found that one of the most ex inspiring experiences of my life. And I was deeply disappointed when it was rapidly snuffed out. And by the way, the first time, as I, as I recall, the first time that a municipal government moved against an Occupy an Occupy encampment in a Canadian city was in the city where I was living and working at the time, London, Ontario. Uh, a former liberal MP who was then the mayor had that shame, uh, shameful mark on his record. But in any event, it was disappointing to many of us. But then came the Sanders movement and Jeremy Corbyn. And, you know, they both came extraordinarily close to power by really articulating a vision it started really with their vision of a socially democratic, principled reform of society, addressing the core issue of inequality and privilege and elitism in our societies. And they both came very close to power. And of course, you know, again, there was a great deal of disappointment when Bernie didn't get the nomination, both in 2016 and in this election, and when Corbyn suffered a quite difficult debate, defeat, by the way, much of which I think was was due to the difficult position he was put in in terms of Brexit. But the progress that was made by Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, uh, and now you have another party in Europe called DiEM25, Democracy in Europe Movement, which is growing rapidly. It's making gains. Yanis Varoufakis is part of that. And many wonderful uh, progressives across the European continent. We are making tremendous progress globally. I think we, we have to see where, compare where we stand today to where we were at the dawn of the financial crisis. We have made enormous strides. This is a long-term battle. As Noam, Cho Noam Chomsky has said many times, you don't achieve transformational victories overnight. You have to do the hard work. I think this country, you know, it's true that we haven't seen that kind of uprising of progressives that we saw in the United Kingdom, that we saw in the United States under Sanders. But this country is ripe for it. 
and all that's missing is somebody and a, not just a person because this isn't about any one person it's not about me it is about a movement we need a movement to coalesce around a platform a vision of the country that people can get behind and i think you know those numbers that i quoted at the outset from that forum poll show that that the potential is there the hunger is there all that's missing is the political will and i believe that this is that moment this is that moment and you know the the pandemic as horrible as it has been as much suffering as it caused and it will continue to cause it does present an extraordinary opportunity people want change more than they've ever wanted it people see more than they've seen in their lifetimes how much government can accomplish when the political will is there to support vulnerable members of society so i think that this is a tremendous opportunity and i can't stress this enough for us to realize the potential of this moment we as progressives have to unite around the country whether it's behind my leadership anybody else's leadership whoever it may be we have to stop splitting our vote and come together and decide what is this movement going to look like what are going to be the key parts of our platform and who is going who is fit and up to the task of leading this movement so for our listeners who might be interested in learning more about your campaign and for those who may be interested in potentially getting involved what can they do well i i strongly encourage your audience, members of your audience, to go to my uh, campaign website, teamdimitri.ca. We're going to start rolling out my platform this week, and we're going to be doing that in stages. We're going to start with reflections on the access to justice crisis in this country and systemic racism in the justice system, and particularly in law enforcement. And we're going to roll out a series of proposed reforms to deal with that. We're going to be rolling out sections on inequality, foreign policy, and uh, a Green New Deal in the weeks ahead so they can they should follow that uh if they're not currently members of the green party and they agree with what they're hearing from me and they agree with the party's core values which are non-violence respect for diversity participatory democracy ecological wisdom sustainability if if they agree with those core values they believe in this vision they should join the party and make themselves eligible to participate in a leadership vote it's $10 for a 3-year membership you can go to my website you'll see the link there to become a member of the party and of course uh you know every political campaign requires financial resources in order to be competitive so for those persons who are in a position even in this economic crisis to make some kind of a contribution to our campaign uh you can do that by going to our website but please whatever you do whatever candidate you decide to support please become engaged in this race i think every single progressive in this country whether you call yourself a socialist don't call yourself a socialist if what i've been saying appeals to you become engaged in this race and make sure that your voice is heard all right well thanks so much dimitri for being on the podcast thank you very much ramel it's a pleasure the interview that you just heard was recorded on june 19th it was actually supposed to have taken place a week earlier, but my recording equipment malfunctioned just as I was getting ready to call Dimitri. So I messaged him to ask if we could uh, delay the interview and he graciously agreed. That was very nice of him. If you're interested in finding out more about his campaign, his website is once again teamdimitri.ca. I want to give a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon. If it wasn't for them, we would have no way to continue making this podcast. 
So I really can't express how much we appreciate the support. If you'd like to help us not only sustain this podcast, but to help us do bigger and better things, please go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and become a monthly patron. Even a small amount goes a long way. I know everyone says that, but it really is true. And it doesn't take long to sign up as a supporter. It's actually really easy. It takes two minutes. And if you do become a supporter, you'll feel good knowing that you're helping us create well-produced food for thought for all the world to consume. Our next episode will be out on July 15th. We'll see you then.